This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge their ongoing connection to land, waters, and culture. Colonization and genocide are ongoing processes that are still happening to this day. Sovereignty was never ceded, and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hey there, welcome back to Ospol Snack Pod, the podcast where two of Australia's foremost political nobodies serve you up bite-sized chunks of Australian news and politics with a side of crispy memes. My name is Zach Snack, and with me as always is my gorgeous, supple co-host. I can only assume that's me. Thanks. Uh, gorgeous, I'll take. I'm not sure about supple, uh, but thanks, Zach. Yeah, it's nice to be back. <laughs> I'm glad that you're glad to be back. Uh, this is going to be kind of an Invasion Day special-ish. We've got mm-hmm. a couple of other stories squeezed in there as well. Uh, but right up top, we also want to send a big thank you to our new patrons that we got this week, April and also Kira, whose Ooh. birthday it was. Happy birthday, Kira. Kira signed up for 10 bucks a month, which means that they got a very special limited edition Ozpol snack pod enamel lapel pin. Um, so if you want to get one of those, you can head over to patreon.com slash ozpolsnackpod. You can also support us for much less money than $10 a month. It could be even just $1 a month. Uh, And that goes to cool stuff that we're doing at the moment, such as uh, written transcripts of every episode, which we've just started doing. We're publishing those on our new website, ospolsnackpod.com, which is also funded by Patreon money. So we want to send a big thank you to all our patrons who help us do that stuff. Yeah, and it's, it's really lovely. We've gotten some really nice feedback already. People being like, this is great. Can share it with people who otherwise, you know, don't listen to podcasts or can't listen to podcasts. So, yeah, that's been really nice to get some immediate feedback that that was a good call. Uh, and hopefully there's some people reading this right now. So, hey, shout outs to you. To you uh, if you're reading yeah. this. And shouts to our anonymous transcriber whose work we very much appreciate, even though we are forbidden from saying their name. Now... Let's get into our first story, and this week it is a... And, you know, pretty rare to actually get some just genuinely good news. Fully great thing that's happened. Yeah. Yeah. We're not squinting, you know, to, to try and sort of make something look positive from a particular angle. We don't have to leave anything. Well, you know, there's still some bad stuff about this story. Yeah, but sure. It's, like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. good. It's good. Okay. So <laughs> 60 of the refugees who were being held at the Park Hotel prison in Melbourne, uh, those were men who were brought here under Medivac, uh, they've been released on bridging visas. So for some of these men, you know, that's the end of eight years of wrongful, mm. illegal imprisonment by the Australian government. Um, and I have a quote here from uh, Mustafa Azmitabar, a.k.a. Moz, who I think can probably express what this moment means much better than I ever could. I am very excited. This is the best moment of my life. I am here with my friend in a beautiful place, in her place, and uh, I don't know how can I explain it, how this moment is uh, beautiful. I feel 34 years of uh, being under torture, trauma, sadness, gone. And now I am free, like a bird, like a 
person who can work, who can pay tax, who can see friends, and I am very happy about it. Yeah, so I, I mean, you could just hear the, the relief in his voice. Mm, mm. Um, and I was there on the day when some of these men were released from the Park Hotel prison, and there was just an, an incredible energy, uh, not only amongst the men themselves, but the, you know, the protesters, many of whom had been there day after day outside mm. the Park Hotel prison, showing the men their support. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is just fantastic. Uh, of course, it's not total freedom. Part of the conditions of the visa is that these men are not allowed to study, for example. I'm sure they have a bunch of other conditions sure. as well. Uh, and, you know, they're bridging visas. They have a six-month expiry date. So mm -hmm. it's not the end of the story. The rationale for the release isn't totally clear. Um, Peter Dutton says that basically he did it because it's cheaper to okay. have them in, com in the community as opposed to paying for them to stay at hotels, which smells like bullshit to me because if that was yeah. the real rationale, then like no one would be in immigration detention. No right, one would right. especially be on Christmas Island where it's like extraordinarily expensive to keep people. Yeah. I mean, it's much cheaper to have anybody who's in the immigration system in the community. But, and, you know... Yeah, but like it, 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 it's like because it's such an inefficient, cruel system... This is a great excuse whenever they do anything more humane. Being like, oh, no, no, don't worry. We're not being humane. It's just about the budget. Like, they can drop this anytime they want to walk back their policy. Yeah, and it's isn't it so fucked that they have to come up with some kind of excuse to be like, no, 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 we're not doing the right thing by these don't people. Don't worry, yeah, yeah. It's just expedient for us. Um, so cooked. And, like, even if it is the real reason... Yeah. That's still That's fucked, also bro. Fucked. Like, you, you <laughs> yeah. imprisoned these people for eight yeah, years and so denied evil. the medical treatment. Several of them died. And now, like, you're letting them into the community because it's cheaper. Like, yeah. so fucking horrible. Anyway, the Refugee Action, Action Collective in, in Victoria here has um, suggested that the combination of legal pressure and constant rolling protests... Mm -hmm. Um, you know, made the government crack and whether or not that's the whole cause, I think it's definitely a major contributor yep. and they've been doing fantastic work. And, you know, as, as I mentioned last week, that support, I think was a, a huge psychological and emotional meaning mm. for uh, the detainees as well, which is obviously super, you know, that's the focus that should be the focus of any yep. action around this is their well-being. Uh, so there are 14 men still being held at the park hotel. They haven't been given any reason that they weren't released, apparently. Whoa. So, you know, the psychological torture continues yep. of those men that are still there. And there are also over 100 refugees being held in a similar situation in a hotel at Kangaroo Point in Brisbane. So the fight's definitely not over, but, yep. you know, solidarity with those refugees that are still in detention and with the protesters who are fighting for their freedom. But still, I mean, this is the first really good mm. news concerning mm. these... Uh, refugees in a long, long time. So, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, I think that it's it's important to take a breath and and um, and feel the Enjoy relief that. of yeah. this moment. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, now we might move on to a potluck. Potluck, where you bring the snacks. It's the first one we've gotten in some time, noon. Yeah. So, if you're a new listener uh, and you haven't Heard a potluck is when you get to contribute to the show. You can just record yourself talking on your phone for about a minute and send it to contact at Um And yeah, we'll 
probably play it on the show. Uh, please remember to take the cover off your phone so that we can hear you clearly. Um, and so this potluck is from Madeline, who wanted to correct something that I said last week about the vaccines, uh, which was a pretty big error. So uh, it's good to get that correction. And here it is now. Hey, SnackPod. Just wanted to clear up the 90 versus 95% efficacy with the Pfizer versus AstraZeneca vaccine from last week. So the two vaccines are quite different in the way that they bring the spike proteins into the body and develop an antibody response to that. With the AstraZeneca vaccine, there's been a couple of numbers going around. The real number that Dr. Norman Swan, who is the ABC Coronacast health reporter for coronavirus, says is to look at is the 60% efficacy, which efficacy is the effectiveness of the vaccine within a clinical trial. So in real world, it may be a bit different, but this is within the trials. So this is what happened when they gave the first dose and then the second dose in the order and in the amounts that they have pre-prepared. The 90% number that was mentioned last week was from a smaller trial that happened in the UK where they accidentally gave the participants a smaller first dose. Now, the trial was too small for them to be able to conclusively say why this worked. There are a couple of theories. One is that it could be that the the people participants didn't develop antibodies to the adenovirus, the chimpanzee virus that was used to bring the virus into the body. And so when they had their second dose, it was more effective. They're still undertaking more studies. But at this stage, what AstraZeneca has done is, hey, they haven't released the full science data, their scientific um, papers and all the data that goes along with it. They're just averaging the other trials with this with the correct dosage with the trial where they gave them the half dosage and that gives them the number of 70% efficacy. Now, if we do go with this number of 70% efficacy to reach herd immunity within Australia, we would have to vaccinate absolutely everyone, all Australians. However, they are still doing more clinical trials and it may be that we all receive the first dose of the AstraZeneca and then a second dose of something else. It may be that the half dose is more effective. They're still looking into it. But at this stage, the health advice is to go off the 60% number because the average that we're, that they're reporting, that 72% between the trial where they made the mistake and the trials where they've given the correct dose isn't really accurate and we don't have the data yet to really understand what happened hope that was helpful keep on snacking in the free world yeah so thanks madeline for that um yeah just to sort of wrap that all up together i said last week that the astrazeneca vaccine had a 90 percent efficacy rate when it's administered with this smaller first dose and then the standard second dose and basically uh the evidence supporting that is thin um, and I, it was hard to piece this together. There was a bunch of different conflicting reports from different sources and even some from the same source. The BBC said several different things. Um, but the AstraZeneca team are very clear this was not an accidental misadministration. Um, what seems to have happened was the Oxford AstraZeneca team outsourced some of the manufacturing of the vaccine, the trial vaccine, to an, a lab in Italy. And this Italian lab used a different way of measuring the density of the vaccine, like how many bits of virus there were per milliliter or whatever. 
And once the vaccine got there to Oxford, AstraZeneca people thought that they were basically double strength, that they were like twice as dense. And so they gave a half dose to like about 1,200 people to give them what they thought would be like roughly a normal dose. Um, but then none of those people who got that half dose got any side effects, which is unusual because like some people should have got side effects from that. Um, so they were like, huh, that's interesting. And then again, this is unclear, but it seems like they then deliberately gave the half dose again to about another 1200 people, uh, to like trial it again. And so there was this one like semi-accidental one, and then they did it again on purpose. Um, the numbers aren't, there's, there's like still not enough numbers of this trial. It seems like it may actually have a 90% efficacy rate, but we don't know yet. Um, and yeah, Madeline also corrected something which um, I didn't say on the show, but it's been AstraZeneca has been saying this about the 72%, which is just mm. literally they average these two numbers, which is very silly. And there's lots of like statistician blogs being like, how do they think they'd get away with this? Or like, yeah. Um, so Yeah, at the risk of like, saying more wrong stuff about health and science mm. that doesn't sound very scientific to me <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh <laughs> but so i mean it seems like Mad what madeline is saying is at the moment basically the health advice is to take the lower on the safe side and yeah go with the lower number which was the 60 percent efficacy which is like yeah. probably not good enough for a national vaccine rollout because yeah that's going to be extremely difficult to get to herd immunity, if not impossible at that efficacy. Totally. And again, on the issue of like contradictory things from different, from the same source, the U S government FDA has said that a vaccine would need a 50% efficacy rate to get approval. And then also um, Anthony Fauci has been saying things along the lines of the AstraZeneca shot will never get approved for use in the U S because it's not efficacious enough. Uh, so, I mean, I guess the whole thing with this pandemic has been we've got no fucking clue what's going on, mostly. Mm. Um, and that continues now, even as we start getting a grip on what's going on. Yeah. Big, no fucking idea energy from everybody involved here, including us. Yeah. Uh, so, not including Madeline, though. Thank yeah. you for that potluck. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we welcome corrections. But also, if you just want to rant about something, if there's a story we haven't covered, if there was a meme that you really enjoyed, if you just want to yeah. make fun of Andrew Laming or someone, you, know, you can Please just do. dial in. Uh, in the meantime, Noon, do you want to take us through our First Nations story this week? Yeah, so this is a pretty sad story. And I guess this is where our like vaguely Invasion Day theme begins. Um mm. I mean, this is just about, like, genocide in general, but given yeah, that it's I think the that week of Invasion maybe, Day, it seems pertinent. Yeah, uh, maybe it's a good place to point out, yeah, that pretty much the rest of this episode is going to be, uh, yeah, discussing the dispossession and, and violence committed against uh, First Nations people. So just kind of a general content warning for that for the, yeah. rest, of the rest of the show. Yep. Um... So with this First Nations story, I wanted to draw the listeners' attention to a series that Guardian Australia has started doing called Childhood in Custody, uh, which is basically to look at the way that police destroy Indigenous children's lives. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of these articles, um, but there's a bunch of them focusing on people who have been directly involved in this like carceral process with these children. Mm. Um, so that includes children themselves, targets and victims of racist policing, parents of kids who have been assaulted and abducted by cops, um, former police members, social worker, a judge, and so on. 
and um, like a lot of these articles had a bunch of statistics in them and I'm not sure all the time how useful that is because like they're really hard to conceive of like for me I find like so Mm. for example most nights in 2019 there were just under a thousand children in jail in western Australia and the vast 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 majority of them were indigenous um, so shocking. And like, I guess I can imagine what a thousand kids looks like. That was like our high school, that many people. But like, yeah. I don't, I can't imagine what that many, like 10 to 16 year olds in jail looks like. But anyway, yeah. The And I guess that's part of the idea of having these, this journalism that actually absolutely. tries to, that focuses in on individual stories because mm-hmm. yeah, it, things do get lost in the shuffle when you're just using numbers. Yep. And one of the points that these articles and the statistics keep making over and over again is that sending someone to jail once is the best way to make sure that they end up going to jail again. And that's vastly more true when they're fucking 10 years old. So like uh, 94% of the 10 to 12 year olds who go to jail are back in jail again before they're 18. Uh, Because obviously, like, of course they do. And like one of the reasons for that is it's the same fucking cops who arrest them every month or two, you know, cause the, the cops don't get in trouble for this. So they stay there continuing the same behavior. Um, and so I'm just going to read this quote from the guardian. Um, in Western Australia, 2018 study found that almost every child in detention was quote, severely impaired in at least one brain function, be it memory, language, attention, or executive function, which limited, limited their ability to plan and understand consequences. The study of 99 children in Banksia Hill Detention Center, which again, I think we made this point about the Park Hotel, but like, that's a nice way of saying jail. Child um, prison. Yeah. Found nine out of 10 kids had some sort of cognitive impairment and one in three had fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, the highest known rate in the world of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder amongst any population in the justice system. 74% of the children in the study were Aboriginal. Impairments may come across in behaviors with young people appearing willfully naughty, defiant, or lazy, when in reality they may have been struggling to remember, understand, or comprehend what is required of them, the researchers wrote. Mm. Um, it's just so deeply upsetting that this impulse, instead of reaching for understanding or patience or humility, to immediately just assume the worst of children, of literal mm. children, mm. that like instead of them needing some extra help or assistance, that there's just something fundamentally bad about them. I mean, that yeah. is just so morally reprehensible. Mm. And I think, you know, um, we've been talking a bit about, like, ableism and access just, like, between us because mm. of this transcript thing recently. And I think often the way that ableism is framed in, you know, the sort of SJW discourse that we're involved in is like about access or, you know, ramps for mobility issues or like, or, or, you know, um, uh, Auslan interpretation or that sort of thing. But this is a intersection of ableism and racism that results Mm. in like beatings and, uh, imprisonment and like um, the fact that there's so many people in jail have brain injuries of one sort or another I don't. I, I didn't look into this for the show so I don't have the numbers with me but huge percentage of people in prison have acquired brain injuries and other sorts of cognitive uh, disabilities and then when you yeah. combine that with racist policing the overlap is just 
Well, it so, makes it so very cool. obvious mm. what our prison system, system is there mm. to actually do. It's not mm. about maintaining law and order or the safety mm. of society and its and its citizens. It's because to punish that's people who... for being the wrong sort of person. Yeah, exactly. Anybody who we just don't feel like we want to deal with, we put them away there. Mm. And yeah, I mean, it's just fucking disgusting. So speaking of fucking disgusting, why don't you play the A-cab sting? AC? So this is really just more of the same story, but um, there was an article where one of the this ex-cop talked about how strip searches were used to torture kids, basically. Um, yeah. And we've talked before on the show about how strip searching is sexual assault, and when it's a small child, that's child sexual assault. Um, and I don't know if I really want to say a whole lot more about that. Like, this cop was obviously very upset with himself about what he had done, but like also the mm. article was a bit like, look, it's a good cop, you know? So um, maybe I'll just like direct uh, listeners to go and check out these articles again. There's, there's more hopeful stuff in, in that article with the cop as well from a First Nations woman who used to work for the police as like a community liaison um, and who quit that job to, uh, and is now involved with a grassroots indigenous boxing and youth mentorship program called clean slate without prejudice, which sounds really cool. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that was, a. I, I found that piece particularly powerful, partially because of the just out and out admission by mm. this cop that strip searching was used, not just punitively, but like sort of like just for, for without any kind of criminal justification almost. at just all like, yeah. yeah absolutely and it was just used as a tool for harassing indigenous kids uh but then the, it kind of the article changes tack uh to talk about some like community mm. uh community Led initiatives that have uh involved the police in some way but not been led by them mm. that have mm. um had much more success you know and you know involved involving sport. Um, so yeah, I do think it's a really good read, but like, I mean, we conject based on the statistics, uh, and police behavior, what their actual motivations are, mm -hmm. but it's very mm -hmm. rare to hear, uh, and even an ex cop come out and just explicitly yeah. say, no, we would do this for no reason with no legal justification at all, yep. specifically yep. just to hassle these kids. It's he also quite said he's gotten an eye watering article since yeah. he's of course the media. Because of course he has. Yeah. Yep, you fuck with the KKK, you know. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to talk about another article from this Guardian series, which was just absolutely heartbreaking, which is the story of a man who, uh, in this article, is called Tira. Uh, and you should, again, definitely read this article because I wanted to pull out a couple of quotes and then just, like, tried copying, you know, a full page of it. But um, basically, the piece is a story of these three major life-defining encounters that this man has had with police this you know indigenous mm -hmm. man has had with police throughout his life so the first was when he was six when he and his family were abducted and put in a slave labor camp which is sometimes called a mission um and then police came back a few days later and said that he was going on a holiday where he was taken away from his family and put in slave labor in a different household for two years and the next time he saw them, he had lost his family's language and couldn't speak with them. And there's oh, this... that's so awful. Yeah, there's this photo of him, age six, being told that he's about to go on a holiday. And, like, um, there's this, like, scared but sort of cautious, hopeful smile that he's making. And it's just, like, this little kid who's like, oh, shit, maybe I'm getting a holiday, you know? Like, 
Um, and I just thought that was, yeah, just disgusting and heartbreaking. Yeah. Mm. The second encounter was when he was 18, when two cops just like picked him up on the street for no reason, drove him to a parking lot, broke his ribs, and then ran him over with their car. Um, and he took them to court, in fact, but then saw one of them again working in a remote community near Port Augusta a couple months later. So clearly that didn't like, really as have a much cop. effect. As a cop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Working as a cop in an indigenous community a couple months later. Yeah. And then the third of these events was in June last year in 2020 when his 16 year old son was verbally abused and then tripped over and face slammed into the pavement by a cop in Redfin, um, which we talked about on the show when it happened. Mm. Um, but like just this one person's story of like four generations of slavery and genocide and targeted by targeted violence by police and like, Mm from when he was six and now his yeah 16 year old kid like made national headlines for the same shit happening um and there was I think, this quote yeah. and that's that like you know people talk about we're in the lead up to invasion day you know this discussion about history and how it's an and historically important date or whatever but history obviously is you know just a series of choices of that people have made to focus on particular events or narratives. And this is, these are the kinds of, you know, these are the kinds of narratives that I think are central Mm. to the history of this nation. Not, you know, it's not the first fleet. Just before we move on, um, I thought, you know, we talked about that issue when that, that kid got face planted by the cop at the time. And there was Mm. a follow-up from it in this article that I thought I would just share with our listeners so that they also know what's going on with that. New South Wales police say they're continuing to investigate the circumstances surrounding the child's arrest and the constable involved remains on restricted duties. They did not answer specific questions about the progress of the investigation or whether there have been efforts made to improve relations with Sydney's indigenous community or to improve police training. I don't know what I don't know what possible extra context there could be around that incident that could in any way justify this fully grown man throwing a child face first into the concrete. Like what could I don't know. Yeah. The the tacit like suggestion that that is what they're investigating is just there was something that might have been okay to do that about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is it time now to move on? Yep. Fashy Australia. So any of those stories that you just shared, Noon, could fit under this segment, really. I mean, any of these stories could fit under any of these segments mm-hmm. in many mm-hmm. ways. Um, but, you know, I mean, the use of state-sanctioned violence to subjugate members of a racial minority, and the continuing, continuing, the continuing physical and cultural genocide of First Nations people, I mean, these are fascist projects Mm -hmm. but i want to focus on the australia part here of fasci australia to point out that the situation here is unusually cruel and racist this is Mm -hmm. not something that happens just anywhere um so this week australia underwent uh what's called uh the universal periodic review of human rights at the united nations so this is a process that happens to each member state of the un every five years where basically every other member state has the opportunity to make recommendations 
for how that's the state that's being reviewed can improve their human rights situation. Right. That's interesting because I was reading in the paper recently about a uh, Chinese uh, representative being like, Australia's fucked in all of these ways, but the article was like, how dare China tell us that we're committing human rights abuses and didn't ha- mention that it was part of the United Nations. Like, by the way, tell us if we're doing human rights abuses, like, program. Yes. China and dozens and dozens and dozens of other <laughs> yeah. countries. Um, and, like, not to get too sidetracked, but the, the like, whataboutism of... W- you, as a horrible state, can't criticize us for being a horrible state. You're a horrible Only we state. can do and it's like, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, like... <laughs> I, maybe we shouldn't be looking to governments and states in general for... Um, <laughs> being any kind Fixing of moral guiding up. lights. But yeah, yeah, mm. yeah exactly. You're holding each other accountable, but whatever. Um, given what you've just said, Noon, about the way mm-hmm. that, that uh, Australia treats First Nations people and Indigenous children in particular, it won't come as a surprise that we got absolutely torn to shreds at the UN. My intention sure. was drawn to this by uh, Not Good Enough podcast. Uh, shouts to them. Go mm-hmm. give them a listen. Um, who shared a Twitter thread from the uh, National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service where they were just basically live-tweeting the comments from other nations about Australia's human rights record as they came up alphabetically, which is, you know, obviously very enraging and depressing, but simultaneously somehow kind of satisfying. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And, uh, like, I'm just going to read the first few tweets in the thread to give you the flavour. Azerbaijan recognizes that racism towards indigenous people is deep-rooted in Australia, with many facing discrimination in housing, education, healthcare, and in the criminal justice system. The Bahamas urges Australia to take concrete steps to address the over-incarceration of indigenous people and ensure the cashless debit card income schemes are non-discriminatory in application. Barbados has urged Australia to combat racism, including affecting indigenous communities to protect children and develop policies to protect the rights of women, especially indigenous women. Belarus has raised concerns that Australia is dodging its obligations to indigenous people. Burkina Faso has raised concerns about racism and recommends that Australia develop a national action plan to stop violence against Aboriginal women and girls. And I'm sure you can imagine it goes on. That's um, like most of the way through B. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you see what I mean about it. Like it's obviously yeah. extremely horrible, but also kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, just to see it called out so explicitly by mm-hmm. you know all these other countries. The main takeaway from the periodic review were calls to raise the age of criminal responsibility from ten to fourteen. Fourteen is still too young to be put sure. in prison. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody should really be going to prison, but. You definitely, definitely shouldn't be putting fucking 10-year-olds in prison. Uh, Over 30 nations individually pressured Australia to raise the age. Uh, And so, you know, this racist, fascist oppression of Indigenous people by the state of Australia is not some kind of business-as-usual operation by a world government. Like, it it doesn't just go unnoticed. We are renowned internationally as the violent colonizers that we are. I am also Um, impressed that like, uh, the Bahamas is aware of the cashless welfare card. Like that, like that was specific, specific, like trailblazing types of racist bullshit. People. No, absolutely. Literally the Bahamas are being like, that's a bit cooked. Like, I don't think the Bahamas has the greatest like welfare system, but you know, I, I, don't know, I don't know. I don't know a heap about them, but like, yeah, 
Australia is at the tip of the spear of like bureaucratic forms of racial oppression and something we haven't talked about for a while, but like, what's his name? Kurt Van Wilder or something. There's like uh, some ultra far right Dutch politician who is like, Europe should be doing what Australia is doing. And like goes to Italy to like give, you know, pump up the people who are out there like freelance shooting refugees boats being like, you're doing it like Australia is doing it. So yeah, we are. Uh, yeah, or you know, Trump promising to like be as strong on borders as, as Australia. Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we're it's a bleak. real. Yeah, we're a real shining light for racists around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's kind of the context that I wanted to establish before we start to get into our conversation. That's more specifically about Invasion Day. So. Yep. I feel like we've sort of laid that groundwork, um, and now we can move on to... It was the best of takes. It was the blurst of takes. You stupid monkey. (laughs) Yeah, well, we do have a blurst take, but first I thought maybe we could kick off this discussion with some tunes. Fuck that, mommy. You can come and wave your flag. It don't mean a thing to me. No, it just don't mean a thing. Fuck that, mommy. I said, hey, Briggs, pick a date. Okay. You know what? We can celebrate. For sure. But we can come together, yeah. talk about the weather, call that Australia Day. I said, how about March 8th? That's a good one. And we can do it on your nan's grave. Oh, we can piss up, piss on his face, <laughs> get lit up and burn out like Mark Skates. <laughs> the screaming love would leave it. I got more reason to be your... That's a great track. Um, you should all go listen to the rest of it. The second verse is also really fucking good. Um, That's... AB original for anybody who January doesn't 26. know the track is called January 26th. Yep. Yep. So, yes. Um, but this is a blessed take. And this week we have a, a take sandwich. We've got blessed and blessed takes. Um, it starts with a reasonably good take. Then there's a particularly blessed take. And then I've got another blessed take to put on the top at the end. So, let's start at the start. Cricket Australia is removing the phrase Australia Day from all its promotional material for the Big Bash League this year. Uh, cool. Three Stuff teams. that means definitely a lot to you and I, Noon. Yeah, yeah. I know I'm, all about the Big Bash and the league where I am drinking a sessionable beer right now, so in that sense, I <laughs> feel true. like I'm at the cricket. You basically are a cricket super fan now. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they're going to stop using the phrase Australia Day, and three teams are going to wear, quote, heavy quotation marks, indigenous-themed jerseys. Um, which I don't know what the actual story is there. Presumably they're getting like indigenous artists and like, it sounds good, but like the phrase indigenous themed jerseys just kind of like, I don't know. (laughs) Do do what you can, I guess. It's just like, okay. (laughs) That's, I think it's, I know it's, I know like, you know, you shouldn't compare different like minority groups or whatever, but often I try and relate to racist shit in terms of like, what would this be if it was Jewish? Cause that's what I know about people being racist to me about. I think about like Jewish themed jerseys anyway. Um, so, but weirdly or not so weirdly, just racistly, the two Melbourne cricket teams are still going to use the phrase Australia day, which boo, one of those teams is the Melbourne Renegades, who are one of the three teams who are going to wear these, quote, indigenous-themed jerseys. So uh, there's some mixed oh, so messages the coming. didn't fix the problem? Ah. No, no, they mm. did fix the problem, and that's why ah. they can still say Australia Day. Oh, okay, yeah, sorry, sorry. 
Uh, um, I got a bit muddled there, but you've set me straight. Okay. A spokesperson from the Melbourne Renegade said that they weren't planning on using any particularly jingoistic messaging. So, okay. <laughs> Go off. Sure, cool. Good on you, Cricket Australia, I guess. Uh, this is tokenistic, but like it's the good, that in, you know, good, do it anyway. You know, symbols are important. <laughs> um, and it's way better than the whole like change the date discourse around Triple J, Hottest 100, my cynicism about the journeys, jerseys notwithstanding, because like Triple J, I feel like it's almost a promotional thing for them at this point. It's like, our music is so important that even if you hate racism, you still need a date for our album. Change the dates. Yeah, whatever. I don't know. But that, that's just me. <laughs> but, like, it's taken fucking decades. It still hasn't happened, and there's a big fucking argument about it. Cricket Australia has just been like, nah. Um, so, good. Good on it. There's the, there's the reasonably good first piece of bread in this take sandwich. But of course fucking Scott Morrison couldn't let that go, um, and he said a bunch of shit, uh, but the soundbite has been, when those 12 ships turned up in Sydney all those years ago, it wasn't a particularly flash day for the people on those vessels either. Um, and like, he's saying, I guess, like, don't say Australia Day is bad because also the convicts were unhappy, which I don't think makes... The sense that he thinks it does. But, you know, he was saying, oh, you know, come together, unity, blah, blah, blah. Fuck right also, off, Scott Morrison. Also, like, kind of beside the point, but, like, weren't there 11 ships in the First Fleet? I have very little interest in the First Fleet and don't know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, um, got a quick Google face going on. Yeah, the First Fleet's 11 ships comprise two Royal Navy escort ships and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> You yeah. can't even fucking you, you like can't even get your own bullshit history right. Yeah, and this isn't the first time that Scott Morrison has done this. Um, and in 2019, a person named Karen Wilde wrote a piece for Indigenous X called "Debunking It Was Hard for Convicts Too," which I literally read the entire piece before realizing it hadn't just come out in the last two days. Um, yeah, Indigenous X retweeted it. Um, right. Like the tweet from when it was initially published almost two years ago, with and the, like just being like, "Hey Scott Morrison, we saw you coming two years ago." Like they they had this article in the bank, <laughs> yeah, ready for the most like just the most absolute basic like schoolyard level arguments that are pro Australia Day, and like who was surprised to to see them dropping like turds from the mouth of our fucking Absolutely. prime minister? Absolutely. So yeah, this this piece by Karen Wilde is the blessed take that completes this take sandwich, um, and she makes a bunch of really great points that are, you know, completely obvious for anyone who's thought about it for thirty seconds and isn't being willfully oblivious. But I will read this brief quote. Undoubtedly, those earlier days were hard on the transported convicts, just as it was difficult for other colonizers and settlers. Food was scarce, violence was plentiful, and let's not forget how dangerous some of our animals are, especially the small beasties. However, the chains were removed from the transported criminals shortly after their arrival, and they were not confined behind bars or anything else for too long. It was first peoples who had felt the chains around their necks and heard the locks turn in doors the longest. Unlike the prisoners transported from England, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders were not sentenced for committing a crime. They were chained and incarcerated during waves of invasion and colonization, as the colonizers slash settlers swept over the lands of many sovereign peoples. And I think 
basically the same point is made by Briggs from AB Original, who we just heard rapping a minute ago on Twitter, at Briggs. He said, Scott Morrison, first fleet uh, argument equates to, yeah, I punched you in the face, but I broke my knuckle. Call it even. Um, Scott Morrison says, it wasn't such a flash day for people on the vessels. Show me the flash days blackfellas have had since then. When you talk about how far we've come, you mean white prosperity, because I'm still set to die 10 to 15 years before my mates. Hmm. And look, this. No, same... I mean, it's just such a. It's just it, like it's so superficially puerile as an argument that it almost is like, how could it? Where do you even start, like mounting an argument against something so flagrantly weak? It also. I mean, it reminds me of what uh, Ruby Hamad calls white tears, weaponized white tears, um, mm. and she talks about she often phrases about being about white women when they're confronted with racism will start crying. And then mm. the conversation comes about how this like, you know, Arab woman has like upset this white woman or whatever. Yeah. And like, I feel like it's the same move that Scott Morrison is trying to make of like, Hey, actually white people had a shit time for a couple of months there. So actually maybe and don't, which call is us exactly about the genocide. same as generations of dispossession and violence. And on so that note, we're even. this same point that Briggs and that Karen Wilde made was made by Tira, the man who I talked about before, who was taken mm. away at age six and whose kid was attacked by the cop in Redfin. And he said this about, uh, so, sorry, this is a, a quote um, from that Guardian article. Uh, at the time, the police commissioner, Mick Fuller, defended the officer involved. He had a clean history, he said. He was having a bad day. And then Tira said this, every day is a bad day for Aboriginal people. Every day, every year, from year to year, we're struggling with mental health, we're struggling with unemployment, we're targeted for just being who we are. And, like, it's the same move, again, Scott Morrison mm. and this police commissioner being like, oh, well, actually, that dude who was participating in genocide was a bit upset, so you can't call him out for it. Um, it's just disgusting. And, and I think the point... Like, the fact that we saw it in this other, like, quote-unquote unrelated story is just, like, colonizers only have, like, a few arguments to try yeah. and deflect from their crimes. No, it's the our, same shit over and over again. Yeah. And it, like, I mean, I think, yeah, Briggs puts it very well when he, you know, about, like, punch you punch me in the face, but you broke your knuckle. It's like, well... <laughs> I mean, this your too fucking bad at some point. Your pain doesn't negate other people's pain. Mm, like yep. it, that still needs to be dealt with. It's not like oh, you know, if you ex even if you did experience perfectly one to one equivalent amounts of pain, mm, which you mm. did not, but even sure, if you did, yeah. that doesn't re absolve you of the responsibility for dealing with the repercussions yeah, from yeah. what you've inflicted on other people. Yeah. Like it just means that you also have your own healing to do. But like, uh, we we've both shot each other, so you know we'll just call it quits. So I guess like, it wasn't anyone's. Who policy. operates like that? Yeah, that's sort of the end of that point about the blurst take from Scott Morrison and the response to that. But I wanted to say a little bit more about this article from Karen Wilde because I thought it was really good, and there was a bunch of stuff that's still relevant, um, even though it was you know two years old. And, and she goes on to you know talk about Scott Morrison's convict ancestors and makes a bunch of really interesting points about how white Australia relates to like the convict narrative, which I thought was interesting. Mm. But the thing that I wanted to point about was this thing that struck me. Uh, like, I, as I said, I read through the whole thing and it thought it had come out 
like today or yesterday and then yeah. scrolled back up and saw it was from 2019. And I sort of had this click moment that the tactics that Scott Morrison is using to whitewash history has remained exactly the same. So I'm going to mm. quote again from this article. Morrison has numerous free settlers on his family tree, but curiously, he only spoke of two criminals in his speech to welcome new citizens, William and Kaiser Roberts. uh, Expressing both pride and pity for his convict ancestors is another attempt to disrupt the call for a more balanced and truthful telling of Australia's colonization history. Mm. He opened with, quote, To elders past and present, I say thank you for the wonderful inheritance you have given us. Unquote. (laughs) before speaking fondly of two of his many ancestors that have benefited from the stolen inheritance. If the intent was to find common ground with both new Australians and first peoples of this continent, then I believe Morrison failed. And this is exactly the same thing as we are one and free from literally Mm. this month, right? He's trying to be like, cool, there were black people here for a while, now we're here, it's the same thing, um... And like, you know, we're one, uh, it's your inheritance, but you've given it to us. And like, it's so disgusting. Like, it's literally unceded land, man. Like, it wasn't given to you. Uh, Anyway, uh, like, all of these tactics to avoid talking about what we do to Indigenous people in this country are also like actively doing those things. You know, when Scott Morrison says we're one and free, what he means is it's cool to beat up and incarcerate and strip search 10 year olds. Um, and when he says, thank you for the wonderful inheritance you've given us, it means we're going to dispossess you of your land, take all of the resources and let you deal with like the nuclear waste. Um, yeah. Anyway, sorry. That's, that was sort of a rant went off off script there, but fuck that guy. No, you're, you're totally right. Um, He's kind of the like a perfect figurehead for like this ahistorical pro Australia Day crowd, mm. right? Like, you know, he's somebody who who, as Karen Wilde points out, continually kind of takes pride in his convict ancestry, and yeah, it's all about honoring his own history whilst erasing the history of those that he doesn't want to acknowledge, mm. and that sort of central hypocrisy, I think, is, uh, you know, kind of the core of this denialism upon which being pro-Australia Day rests. Mm. Uh, And that's probably a good point to transition into our mains. Uh, I thought this week we could have non-existent Pavlova because, you know... Australia does not exist... Australia does not exist. What do you reckon about Pavlova does not exist? <laughs> Pavlova does not exist. Also good. Um, you should go and check out that full track, Australia Does Not Exist by Dreaming Now. Incredible piece of music. Um, but uh, I-, I wanted to talk here just a little bit about the history of Australia Day itself and its kind of cultural significance and the evolution of, of opposition to the day itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, obviously you have the first fleet arriving January 26, 1788, but, you know, the British first landed on country in 1770. Yeah. Um, but that first arrival of those uh, 11 slash 12 shiploads of convicts is when 
you know, the, the settler colony of Australia is really first sure. considered to have begun. But so, you know, make me consider, like, what does that date really mark? It doesn't mm, mark mm. the first landing of the British, and it doesn't mark the occasion when so-called Australia officially became a nation. That's mm. the 1st of January. What it really marks is that was the point at which Britain had brought enough settlers that the dispossession and murder of indigenous people could really begin in earnest. Yeah, um, yeah, that makes sense. That's what that's mm. what the date means, you know. Mm. Obviously, that violence has continued until this day, albeit, albeit um, nowadays in a much more organized and legalistic fashion. Um, but so, okay, early white settlers commemorated the 26th of January as landing day or foundation day, kind of sporadically, but it's not until the 1870s when the idea of a national holiday is first introduced. Right. Uh, and the most prominent advocates for a national holiday uh, were the Australian Natives Association, oh, uh, yeah. which, yeah, it might not be exactly what you think it sounds like. Um, <laughs> the Australian Natives Association was a society made up exclusively of white men born in Australia. Oh, jeez. Uh, I think yeah, they expanded much their... Worse than I expected. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think they expanded their rules after a couple of years to also include white men born in other British colonies. Um, real, <laughs> real radically inclusive shit. Um, anyway, their, their deal was to provide their members with like sickness, medical and funeral cover amongst other things. Um, but yeah, Sorry, I mean, this just can... reminds me of that bonus episode that we did about prominent feminists in Australia or like, you know, historical feminists. And um, I talked about uh, an indigenous woman who started the first, indigenous-led indigenous peoples association and there would be like a bunch of them set up by a bunch of white people and she was like um i think i would like to be in charge actually <laughs> uh yeah fuck the australian natives association uh my new favorite group to fucking hate yeah i've never heard of them before um, but they sound like the worst yeah no they uh uh, as you can imagine, they were very, very cool people. It's probably mm -hmm. not surprising that they were big proponents of the white Australia policy, which I have here in my notes as WAP, which WAP. is basically always going to be funny. Um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah, they were one of the last major groups in Australia to support the policy uh, into the 1970s. So Australian Natives Association, big fucking white supremacists. Important to remember that these are the kinds of people who are really pushing for January 26th to be a national holiday, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. In 1931, that's what they get-ish in uh, Victoria. Uh, the Australian Natives Association is very big in Victoria in particular, worth noting. Uh, also the home of the two cricket teams who were still going to use Australian Day messaging. Yeah. I don't know if there's a connection there, but hey. Most progressive um, government in Australia, just a bunch of racists. Yeah. Right, go on. <laughs> uh, so yeah, in, in 1931, uh, Australia Day becomes a long weekend in Victoria, uh, not necessarily celebrated on January 26th, and then, uh, but you know, around the date, and other states had all followed suit by 1935. So there is an Australia Day long weekend at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, the next sort of historically important moment. Uh, happens in 1938 when it's the the 150th anniversary of the first fleet landing. I believe that's the sequicentenary. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, sure. Latin nerds. Uh, 
So, you know, during the celebrations of the 150th anniversary, uh, a day of mourning and protest was held by uh, Yoda Yoda activist William Cooper alongside uh, several other activists. And this is the first record that I could find of like a counter event on cool. January 26. Um, so this happened in Sydney. Uh, the, the participants marched silently from Town Hall to Australian Hall on Elizabeth Street where they had a meeting and uh, Jack Patton, who was at the time the president of the Aborigines Progressive Association, read this resolution. We, representing the Aborigines of Australia, assembled in conference at the Australian Hall, Sydney, on the 26th day of January 1938, this being the 150th anniversary of the white man's seizure of our country, hereby make protest against the callous treatment of our people by the white men during the last 150 years and we appeal to the Australian nation of today to make new laws for the education and care of Aborigines. We ask for a new policy which will raise our people to full citizen status and equality within the community. Um, you know, an important reminder that, of course, First Nations people are not mm. citizens at this point. Yep. You know, when at, at this time when settlers are celebrating 150 years of colonization. Again, this is that same point Karen Wilde made that like, yeah, sure, maybe this the the transported prisoners were having a shit couple of weeks, but like then they got to be citizens of the country. Um It's just so very fucking obviously not the not same thing. Not the same thing. thing. <laughs> yeah. It's just not the same thing. Um so anyway, in the late seventies, uh, the Australia Day Council is formed. Uh, and to this day is one of Australia's most respected troll organizations, <laughs> repeatedly and deliberately giving awards to the absolute yeah. worst people in the colony. This year's highlight being a long-term uh, homophobe who briefly played tennis called Margaret Court. Uh, I Go on. always want to shout out my psychiatrist who has a Australia something. I can't remember what it is exactly. But um, he always forgets who I am and doesn't read my case notes. So, you know, f- fuck him too, I guess. <laughs> nah, you're, you're cool. I, Pat, I don't think you're listening, but uh, shout outs if you are. Please, go on. Sorry. I will. Uh, let me jump ahead to 1988. Uh, then when the name Invasion Day uh, is apparently first coined, I got that information from australiaday.org.au though. So, okay. <laughs> you know, great assault. Um, uh, but it's not the until Australian Natives Association when it came out. <laughs> um, it's not until 1994 that celebrating Australia Day with a national public holiday is actually properly established, right? As in, after I was born, after you were yeah. born, yeah, that was the year that Muriel's Wedding came out. Hmm. That was the year that the first episode of Blue Healers came out, and um, this is a bit of a sidebar. But while I was quickly looking up what actually happened in 1994 in Australia yeah, right. um, to to get my little bits for this section, um, I came across this. On the 27th of February, Sport and, Environment, Sport and Environment Minister Ros Kelly resigns over her department's alleged political bias in administering some $30 million in grants to sporting bodies. Jeez. Noon, could you take a stab at what this affair might have been called? Oh, this one with the rorts involving sports funding? <laughs> Jeez. Of course, this is another sports rorts. Um, yep. Nothing fucking changes. Yeah. Such yeah. a silly, silly colony. Okay, so I think that hits that history kind of puts paid 
to any arguments that people have about Australia Day being like a tradition or whatever. There's literally a much longer history of January 26 being a day of mourning than there is of it being a national public holiday. Like, that's just the facts. It's a very young <laughs> public holiday. Also, uh, and like, I feel kind of bad because it's sort of like going against the point that you've just like spent a few minutes setting up, but like also old traditions that are bad and celebrate genocide should still not continue. Like you should yes. replace them with new days of mourning, even if it's an old tradition, but this one, it's a new Agreed. tradition. And even that silly argument doesn't apply. I mean, the public holiday is a new tradition, like celebrating the date that we started to commit genocide is a very old and storied tradition, which as let's you say, just have, is also not a good reason to have it. Like, Let's just have like six more public holidays about nothing at all. And yeah, just a I've day seen of mourning some, like, on January 26th. A little like, bit of hashtag discourse that being like saying that we shouldn't have Australia, an Australia Day public holiday is anti-worker because we fought so hard for that public holiday. Bro. Just put the holiday on a different date and make it about donuts or something. It's or just like not rocket science. We have let's have a, a public holiday week, you know, for the week. parade that precedes a sports game here in Victoria. <laughs> like yeah. you can literally make it about fucking anything. We have one we about celebrate the monarch of a different country on for her birthday on a day that's, on a not, day her that's not her birthday. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really easy. I'm not even joking about like National Donut Day. Everybody can... We could have a fucking We Mostly Beat Corona Day. Uh, like, that's a yeah. legitimate we thing We may not to want to establish day. that day for no, a sure, little while yeah. yet. <laughs> give, it a, give it a minute. But, like... Yeah. We're taking suggestions. AstraZeneca Day, you know? Uh. <laughs> All right. That's enough of that. <laughs> um, I think it's important to note as well that Australia, as far as I can tell, seems to be the only colony that uses the date of colonization and dispossession to mark its national day. You know, in the US, right, it's right. Independence Day. Obviously, they do have Columbia Day, but that's not the national day. Uh, New Zealand, they have Waitangi Day, which yep. commemorates the signing of a treaty between settlers and the Maori people. Of course, we can't have an equivalent day because uh, we don't have a treaty, so... Uh, but yep. there's many other days that you could choose if you needed to have a day of national celebration, which yeah. you don't. But if you really wanted to... Because jingoism is silly and, and pointless. Yeah. But... So, you know, maybe we should change the date. Oh, wait, I'm getting word that it's time for... Shitpost of the week. It's got to go out to Kira this week, who, again, happy birthday. Just shitposting immensely. Yeah, um, a, a fucking storm of shit posting, a shit storm, if you will. Uh, you have to go and check out Beautiful, Talented, and Deadly on Facebook, and I'm pretty sure on Instagram, and I'm pretty sure on Twitter as well. But yeah, basically just a slew of Invasion Day-related content. Yeah. Um, but here's the one that I wanted to point out in particular. Uh, it's kind of like a variation on the distracted boyfriend meme. So you've got, like, newlyweds on the beach... And the woman is labeled hashtag change the date. And she's looking at the camera and the husband is looking into the sea where emerging glistening from the ocean is a, like a muscly hunk labeled abolish Australia day. Um, and uh, Kira captioned it looking good coming out of the water all wet and shit. Uh, yeah. So yes, snack pot is not a hashtag change the date podcast. No. We are at the very least a hashtag abolish Australia day mm -hmm. podcast if not a hashtag abolish Australia podcast. Um, 
Just before we go on, I wanted to shout out something about Kira's shitposting, which is not specifically Ozpol related that I really enjoy, which is that when they get racists or dickheads or whatever on the page, they always refer to them as sir. And, they, you know, I saw one the other day when they were like, um, <laughs> someone was using some racist slur. They were being like, whatever, it doesn't matter. And Kira was like, sir, I'm literally indigenous. Please don't use that word. or what? He, <laughs> Yeah. And um, it just Very gives everything Lord. that they say the flavor of that, sir, this is a Wendy's meme. Yes. Yeah. And it's great because they can make all sorts of actual points but I still feel like they're saying, sir, this is a Wendy's. And I just feel like that's a really beautiful... You, you know, love that, sir, this niche. is a Wendy's energy. Yeah, yeah I do. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like I, over the last few years, I, I feel like I've undergone a little bit of a, a journey of understanding this, like, abolish Australia Day versus change the date mm-hmm. thing. I think it was when I very... It was right when I got Twitter, I think, uh, was... Like uh, it was at an invasion day protest, and like the first right, thing right. that I posted was some photos of the rally, which with hashtag change the date. And then uh, I was talking about it with my partner Holly later on, and she was like, "Yeah, that's not really like that's not cool. really the thing anymore." Yeah. And I was like, yeah. "Oh, oh, what do you mean?" And, and she went on to explain why. Um, and so you know, from there to abolish Australia Day, from there to abolish Australia, but like. You know, given everything that we've discussed, at the end of the mm. day, no matter when you celebrate it, if you are celebrating the concept of Australia, you are celebrating dispossession and genocide. Mm. It's really as simple as that. Um, and, you know, I think people might argue that change happens incrementally. You need to kind mm-hmm. of like start small with achievable goals. But I mean, I think changing these cultural signifiers is starting at the wrong end of the problem. Um, and it also leaves room for this, like, we are one and free bullshit, right? Yeah, yeah. Where, mm. like, the the government can pretend that this is something that people are really asking for and then make it a tiny, completely meaningless adjustment to something nobody cares about yep. uh, and act as if they're making progress. Like, you know, if you start at the point of abolish Australia, even mm, it's even mm. if it's a you know provocative position, it actually gets at the underlying problems, right? Like it, it articulates a position that yep. is not based in symbolism or cultural wars. It's about what the actual material existence mm. of Australia means. Questions of public holidays and national celebrations, you know, will flow naturally. I think if right, the common right. understanding of what Australia is can be changed. Yep. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, and, you know, I'm sure that there are people who would disagree with me, but from my perspective, if we understand Australia with any degree of historical accuracy, you can really only draw one truthful conclusion. It's a violent, illegitimate colonial project, and every non-Indigenous person has a responsibility to face that fact. Mm -hmm. And, And then we have the responsibility to support Indigenous people and to fight alongside them for land rights, for self-determination, for the preservation of culture and language, for physical well-being, for mm. freedom from state violence, for dignity. Uh, we have a responsibility to fight for justice and to undo as much as we can the centuries of violence and oppression from which we benefit as settlers. And so there is no good way to celebrate so-called Australia. Instead, we should celebrate 
the cultures that maintained social and environmental harmony on this land for tens of thousands of years, for literally for, for time immemorial, as the saying goes. So if you're able, go to the Invasion Day protest in your nearest town or city. If you're able, volunteer to help out and carry that drive for justice for First Nations people with you, not just on the 26th of January, but through the rest of the year. Yeah, big agree. I think you said it, Zach. Yeah. Um, it's a, a focal point for racists and it's a focal point for people trying to point out racism. But yeah, we uh, we do need to be paying attention to this shit um, every day of every year. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I think that probably brings us to the end of our show this week. Uh, yeah, I'm... Um, solidarity with uh the first nations people of this continent uh go to your rally if you can and uh we will catch you next week